Hello everyone and welcome back. Today I'm going to be discussing the book A General Introduction to Psychoanalysis by Sigmund Freud. This book is comprised of several lectures that Freud gave to the University of Vienna between the years of 1915 and 1917. And so that's one of the reasons why I chose this book to begin with um, for reading Freud is because it's a general introduction and I wanted to read a book that where he explains his thoughts and his theories to the layman. And actually, G. Stanley Hall, he was a founding president of the APA, the American Psychological Association, he wrote a foreword to this book. And what he says is he writes, These 28 lectures to laymen are elementary and almost conversational. Freud sets forth with a frankness almost startling the difficulties and limitations of psychoanalysis and also describes its main methods and results as only a master and originator of a new school of thought can do. These discourses are at the same time simple and almost confidential, and they trace and sum up the results of 30 years of devoted and painstaking research. While they are not at all controversial, we incidentally see in a clearer light the distinctions between the master and some of his distinguished pupils. So yeah, that's exactly why I chose this book, is because it's for laymen. And I wanted to read what he had to say toward laymen before I started to get down and kind of into the weeds of some of his other published works um, that were maybe written more for the psychoanalytic community um, in, his, in his circle. Now, one point I wanted to make is that we hear a lot about Freud. When you, if you study psychology, even at the bachelor's level or a master, you're gonna you're gonna hear about Freud, and you might have a class, like one class on psychodynamic theory. There's a lot of criticisms of Freud. Um, people will say, you know, that guy he was just into sex and cocaine, and uh, you know, he wasn't very scientific, and all of these different um, criticisms. Um, and Freud himself, in this book, he said. If owing to ignorance of the subject you are not in a position to adjudicate, then you should neither believe nor reject. You should only listen and allow what I tell you to make its own effect upon you. Convictions are not so easily acquired, or when they are achieved without much trouble, they soon prove worthless and unstable. No one has a right to conviction on these matters who has not worked at this subject for many years, as I have, and has not himself experienced the same new and astonishing discoveries. One of the purposes of why I chose this book is because, you know, I've, I've liked Freud for a long time, but I've never really read a lot of his work. I've read The Interpretation of Dreams, um, but other than that, this was only my second book by Freud that I read. So I want to I wanna understand him better, and I want to understand psychoanalysis better. So I want to see what he says for myself and not just base my opinion of him and his theories on the criticisms of third, fourth, fifth, and 20 times removed parties. So I have 12 takeaways for all of you. I'm going to try to go through these briefly, but we'll see what I can do. Takeaway one, words and the talking cure. So when Freud first began practicing, he practiced with a fellow named Brewer. And they found um, with, the, with their patient by the name of Pappenheim, they found that if she was able to 
talk through her experiences and and um, talk through her emotions and her, what she was going through, that it seemed as if she was to be cured. And kind of through this, Freud coined the term the talking cure. In in the in the general introduction to psychoanalysis, Freud was talking about therapy and how many people might object to therapy or um, maybe just don't believe it and don't believe in it. And they say, "What are you going to do? You're going to you're going to go talk to someone. You're going to go talk about your feelings." Like, kind of dismissing it in that way. And kind of in a defense, uh, Freud says. Words and magic were in the beginning one and the same thing, and even today words retain much of their magical power. By words one of us can give to another the greatest happiness or bring about utter despair. By words the teacher imparts his knowledge to the student. By words the orator sweeps his audience with him and determines its judgments and decisions. Words call forth emotions and are universally the means by which we influence our fellow creatures. Therefore, let us not despise the use of words in psychotherapy, and let us be content if we may overhear the words which pass between the analyst and the patient. And I love this idea of words being powerful and words being like magic and one and the same. Um, Carl Jung talked about just a secret, and a secret can be just as damaging as repressed emotions can be, psychologically speaking. And when you, I don't know if you've, you know, if you have ever been to therapy. Um, you might it gives you a chance to say things out loud for the very first time. A lot of times, we have these ideas, these thoughts in our head, in our minds, and we actually move about our life according to these thoughts, according to these beliefs, according to these presuppositions. And when you're in therapy, you get a chance to talk about things you might not talk about with anyone else in the world. And when you say these things out loud for the first time. Sometimes it can be kind of, oh, wait, that's not right. That's not, that's not quite what I'm experiencing, or that's not quite what I believe, or that sounds harsh when I say it out loud. Maybe I want to rethink this. And a lot of times, by by talking it through, we can put the we can put the ideas, the beliefs out there, and we can toy with it, and we can manipulate it, we can change it, and we can、um, live out. A truer belief or a truer idea, something that's truer to ourselves and more congruent, and that's the first point I wanted to bring to you guys. Point number two: introducing psychoanalysis to the patient. The second point、um, that I found interesting through reading this book was how Freud tells of how he explains psychoanalysis to the patient, and he compares this with how a medical doctor might explain to their patient. What's about to happen? And he says a medical doctor might try to give you assurance. Might say this this treatment will work. We know that if you take this medicine or if you go through this procedure, the chances of success are approximately this much. And you try to assure reassure the patient.、Um, in psychoanalysis, he says it's a bit different. And this is what Freud writes: We explain to him the difficulties of the method, its long duration. The trials and sacrifices which will be required of him, and as to the results, we tell him that we can make no definite promises; that success depends upon his endeavors, upon his understanding, his adaptability, and his perseverance. So I love the way that Freud puts this. He talks about explaining the trials and the sacrifices, and that it's not about me as the doctor, the analyst, the therapist. 
It's about you as the patient and your capabilities and what you're willing to put forth. And, you know, right a few days ago, I read, I was reading Freud's Vienna and other essays by Bruno Bettelheim. And he talks about his first time going to see an analyst. And what he writes is right along these lines. And let me read it to you guys. On this first meeting, after we had discussed the time of the sessions and the fee I was to pay, I revealed my doubts about going into analysis. I first asked Dr. Sterpa whether he thought I really needed to do so. His answer was that he had not the slightest idea now. He might know whether or not I needed it in perhaps a year or possibly two, but by then I would know it too and would not need to be told by him. This hardly reassured me about my question, so after some further small talk, I asked him whether a psychoanalysis would help me. To this, his answer was pretty much the same as before. At this moment, he had no idea, and he would not know any sooner than would I. These answers failed to reduce my doubts, so with some desperation, I finally asked him what reason there could be for me to go into psychoanalysis. To this, he replied that from our conversation, he had learned that for many years I had been interested in psychoanalysis. Because of this, the only promise he felt able to give me was that I would find the experience very interesting because I would discover things about myself that I had not known before. This would permit me to understand myself better and would make my many aspects of my life and behavior more comprehensible to me. Since I had the time and the money to undergo psychoanalysis, why not find out more about myself? And he talked about how he respected the analyst, Dr. Sturber, all the much more because he didn't make false promises. It wasn't about him as the analyst. It wasn't about him as the doctor. It was about Bredelheim as the patient. Point three, psychoanalysis and advice. Now, there are many different therapeutic styles out there. My last therapist and my last supervisor were both very prone toward giving advice. I would barely get my thought or my problem fully formed and my therapist would already be giving me advice or this is what I would do or this is what I did in a situation like that. Um, but according to psychoanalysis, this is not their job. This is not what they're to, there to do. Um, this, is, this is what Freud says about giving advice. He says, I can assure you that you are quite misinformed if you imagine that advice and guidance concerning conduct in life forms an integral part of the analytic method. On the contrary, so far as possible, we refrain from playing the part of mentor. We want nothing better than that the patient should find his own solutions for himself. To this end, we expect him to postpone all vital decisions affecting his life, such as choice of career, business enterprises, marriage or divorce, during treatment, and to execute them only after it has been completed. Now confess that you had imagined something very different. Only with certain very young or quite helpless and defenseless persons is it impossible to keep within such strict limitations as we should wish. With them, we have to combine the positions of physician and educator. We are then well aware of our responsibility and act with the necessary caution. So I don't know that modern-day psychoanalysts would have you refrain from making choices about your business career or your marriage or a divorce. Um, especially given, you know, Bruno Battleheim talked about his analyst said, well, in a year or two, we'll find out. So that's a long time to postpone things, especially in the modern era. Um, but the idea still stands that they're not about giving advice. They're not your guider. They're not your mentor. Um, and what they want to foster is independence. And 
they want to help you come up with solutions on your own and that that fosters confidence. And if, if you're going around saying, oh, through therapy, I found this out about myself. I discovered things about myself. I've, I'm making decisions, better decisions. I'm all more capable than I've ever imagined. I'm more powerful, more mysterious, more, more wise than I knew before. That's what they want. Not, they don't want you going around saying, oh, my therapist told me to do this and that's what I'm doing and life is getting pretty good. Um, but it, you know, advice fosters dependence and it encourages dependence on the therapist and you don't want that. And that's what Freud's saying. Point number four, psychoanalysis and symptom reduction. If you go through any type of psychological studies, you'll know that what the field of psychology currently uses in America especially, is the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, 5th edition. Now, this manual is categorized by, um, it's categorized by categories. So you got like mood disorders, anxiety disorders, personality disorders, etc. And these disorders, let's say a mood disorder, for example, um, major depression. Major depression, that diagnosis is based on the amount of symptoms one has. So it's all symptom-based. So for instance, it'll list maybe 12 symptoms. And if you have five out of the 12 symptoms, then you meet criteria for major depression. So what psychologists do nowadays is they have the idea that if we reduce symptoms, if they only meet four symptoms instead of five, they no longer have diagnosis of depression. So what they do, they're all about symptom reduction. Well, this is what Freud said about symptom reduction back in the early 1900s. In the eyes of the general public, the symptoms are the essence of a disease, and to them a cure means the removal of the symptoms. In medicine, however, we find it important to differentiate between symptoms and disease, and state that the disappearance of the symptom is by no means the same as the cure of the disease. The only tangible element of the disease that remains after the removal of the symptoms, however, is the capacity to form new symptoms. Exactly, and in this passage, Freud talks about it being in the eyes of the general public. Well, nowadays, it's not just the eyes of the general public, it's the whole field of psychology. That's how we operate, um, except for, you know, psychoanalysts. So there's a fellow by the name of Jonathan Shedler, Dr. Shedler, and him and Dr. Nancy McWilliams talk about this. Um, they talk about the 10 psychological vital signs. And the 10 psychological vital signs are, number one, greater attachment security and sense of safety in relationships. Number two, a more integrated and coherent experience of self and others. Number three, increased sense of personal agency. Number four, more realistically grounded and reliable self-esteem. Number five, greater emotional resilience and capacity for affect regulation. Number six, greater ability to reflect on and understand own and others' inner experience, otherwise known as mentalization. Number seven, increased comfort in functioning both independently and communally. Number eight, a more robust sense of vitality and aliveness. Number nine, enhanced capacity for acceptance, forgiveness, and gratitude. And number 10, 
movement toward more mature and flexible defenses. So you see, for, for psychoanalysts, it's not just about symptom reduction. Symptom reduction doesn't mean the cure of a disease. It's about these 10 psychological vital signs. And these, these vital signs are a much greater measure of overall mental health or well-being, psychological well-being, than the mere absence of symptoms. And furthermore, Freud talked about how he saw symptoms as meaningful expressions. They were important to understand and they weren't just something to be shooed away or, or, or wished away. Um, he wrote, quote, It requires strenuous work for many months and even years to demonstrate that the symptoms in a case of neurotic illness have a meaning, serve a purpose, and arise from the patient's experiences in life. So you see, for Freud, symptoms, symptoms served a meaning. They had a meaning. They served a purpose. And one thing that I think is important to ask, if you have someone with, with symptoms, whether it be symptoms of ADHD, depression, um, especially like behavioral disorders for children, is maybe not just, okay, well, maybe they have a chemical imbalance or maybe they have something going on genetically. Let's just give them medicine and hope it goes away. Um, but let's ask, what is the meaning of this symptom? What is it trying to communicate? What is it trying to move you toward? Um, what is it, what does it want you to know? And I think that's a much, a different, much different mentality to take. Um, and one I, I think is very useful. Point five, psychic determinism. Now, something clear from Freud's lectures is that he believed in psychic determinism. Psychic determinism being the idea that of cause and effect, even in mental life, that everything that has a result has a cause. So in his words, I have already taken the liberty of pointing out to you that there is within you a deeply rooted belief in psychic freedom and choice, that this belief is quite unscientific, and that it must give ground before the claims of a determinism which governs even mental life. Now, if you believe in free will, you know, say what you will about psychic determinism. But I think in a large part, it was this belief in psychic determinism that allowed Freud and his followers to look into things like slips of the tongue and dreams. More about those two in just a moment. Point six, psychiatry. In general, um, you'll see a lot of psychiatrists who are, they're medical doctors, they've studied the brain and biology, and they may be biased or may be prone to thinking about the cause of any type of mental disorders having to do with the brain. If someone is depressed, it's probably just a chemical imbalance and they need antidepressants. If someone is overly anxious, it's probably just a chemical balance and they need anxiolytics. Um, I think a lot of times they're not going to look too much deeper into the issue. They might ask you some general questions, what's going on in life and so forth. But at the end of the day, they're probably going to give you some type of a medicine. And um, maybe a lot of times they're not going to look at like underlying causative factors because for them, the underlying causative factor is most likely the brain. Um, and this was even the case back in the early 1900s with Freud, it seems. So what he wrote is he's talking about uh, specifically delusions right now. Uh, he gave an example of someone with a delusional disorder being treated by a psychiatrist. And this is what he says. When a delusion cannot be dissipated by the facts of reality, it probably does not spring from reality. 
Where else then does it spring? Delusions can have the most various contents. Why is the content of it in this case jealousy? What kind of people have delusions, and particularly delusions of jealousy? Now we should like to listen to the psychiatrist, but he leaves us in the lurch here. He considers only one of our questions. He will examine the family history of this woman and will perhaps bring us the answer that the kind of people who suffer from delusions are those in whose families similar or different disorders have occurred repeatedly. In other words, this lady has developed a delusion because she had an hereditary predisposition to do so. That is certainly something, but is it all that we want to know? Is it the sole cause of her disease? Does it satisfy us to assume that it is unimportant, arbitrary, or inexplicable that one kind of delusion should have been developed instead of another? And are we to understand the proposition that the hereditary predisposition is decisive, also in a negative sense? That is, that no matter what experiences and emotions life had brought her, she was destined some time or other to produce a delusion? You will want to know why scientific psychiatry gives no further explanation. You see, psychoanalysis, it digs deeper. It doesn't just look at, is this a hereditary thing? But it, they ask, why a delusion? Why specifically a, jealous, a delusion of jealousy? Freud likened himself unto an archaeologist, um, digging into the ancient past and trying to discover truths that have been long dormant or long buried, that have been repressed, that are in the unconscious. And so if he had a delusional patient, let's say, he's not just going to accept the answer that it's hereditary, it's all about the brain. He's going to look at what, what's gone on in your life, what have you pushed down, what have you pushed away. Let's see if we can uncover something that's going to give us a clue why you're delusional and why it's specifically a jealousy-type delusion. Number seven, errors. I'm not going to talk too much about errors because my next video is going to be on the book The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, which goes extensively into errors and slips of the tongue and things of that sort. Um, but I do want you to know that Freud considered the study of errors and dreams to both be very important for psychoanalysis. He wrote, The introduction to psychoanalysis lies in the study of errors and dreams. To keep it short, in errors, there is usually the thing that you wish to say, and then the thing that you're trying to say, which might come into conflict. And the complex, or the result, is the slip. You might have heard of a Freudian slip. Like I said, we'll go into that more later, but understanding how this plays out and understanding how dreams play out allowed Freud to better understand how a neurosis is formed, how a mental illness is formed, and the mechanisms behind that. In, in studying errors, Freud wrote, Every one of us who can look back over a fairly long experience of life would probably say that he might have spared himself many disappointments and painful surprises if he had had the courage and resolution to interpret as omens the little mistakes which he noticed in his intercourse with others, and to regard them as signs of tendencies still in the background. For the most part, one does not dare to do this. One has an impression that one would become superstitious again by a circuitous scientific path. And then, not all omens come true, and our theories will show you how it is that they need not all come true. Carl Jung, in Modern Man in Search of His Soul, he wrote these words, 
When an ancient Roman stumbled upon the threshold as he left his house, he gave up his plans for the day. This seems to us senseless, but under primitive conditions of life, such an omen inclines one at least to be cautious. When I am not in full control of myself, my bodily movements may be under a certain constraint. My attention is easily distracted. I am somewhat absent-minded. As a result, I knock against something, stumble, let something fall, or forget something. Under civilized conditions, these are mere trifles, but in the primeval forest, they mean mortal danger. So you see, for the psychoanalyst, it was really important if there was part of you that was restraining or refraining from doing something, if you noticed that what you wanted to say didn't come out, but something else came out, it was important to take a step, examine that, analyze it, and to see if there's a part of you that's not congruent or that's not in line with the rest of yourself. And in talking about examining yourself, point number eight is dreams. Now, I'm not going to go too much into dreams, but let me see if I can explain it just a little bit. So in dreams, for Freud, it was all about a wish fulfillment. And the latent content, that is the, the content that is at the, at the very base, that's what you're wishing for. Often what you're wishing for might be unacceptable either to yourself or to society. So it has to be disguised, which is the manifest dream content. That's the visions that you see, the symbols. It's the wish in disguised form. And Freud found that it, it disguises itself because of conflict. And so in this book, Freud talked about how dreams prepare us for comprehension of the neuroses. So to give an example, um, let's say that there's a teenage son and he's angry with his father. Now, so the latent content would be that he's angry with his father, but perhaps that's not acceptable. Maybe he's scared to be angry with his father. He doesn't feel like he can display the anger. So the wish fulfillment takes place through the manifest content, which is the way that his anger is manifested. Let's say that he has like a panic attacks. Let's say he develops panic attacks. That panic attack for Freud would be kind of a wish fulfillment of that anger maybe in some way or another that the panic attacks that that boy now has is a way for him to release his anger, to express his anger, or to get back at his father. So you see the parallels between interpreting dreams and understanding how dreams work and interpreting um, neuroses or mental illnesses and understanding how they work is very similar. So for Freud, if you can understand how to, if you can understand the mechanisms of dream work, you can understand the mechanisms of mental illness. And so with that being said, I recommend the interpretation of dreams by Freud. If you want to get a better sense of how he explains the mechanisms of dream work and how to understand dreams. Oh, and as a fun tidbit, if you've ever had a dream about losing your teeth or your teeth falling out, this is what Freud said about that type of a dream. A particularly remarkable dream symbol is that of having one's teeth fall out or having them pulled. Certainly, its most immediate interpretation is castration as a punishment for onanism. Onanism being masturbation. So if you've ever had this dream, now you know what it means according to Freud. And I think that's a good segue for point number nine, sex. We wouldn't really be discussing Freud if we didn't get too much into sex, you might have heard that sex takes a big part in a lot of his theories and ideas. I'm not going to get into the reasons why, 
but I did want to highlight a few interesting aspects. The first being, uh, Freud wrote, the precautionary measure of coitus interruptus, which is the pull-out method, when practiced as a customary sexual regime, is so regularly the cause of anxiety neurosis in men, and even more so in women, that medical practitioners would be wise to inquire first of all into the possibility of such an etiology in all such cases. Innumerable examples show that the anxiety neurosis vanishes when the sexual malpractice is given up. And you might think to yourself, pulling out can lead to anxiety? Well, not only that, but according to the Bible, it might lead to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, I don't think that the point of this story is that the Lord put Onan to death for pulling out. I think it has more to do with him not fulfilling his obligation, his duty, his roles, which is kind of the point. I'm not sure about the sex life of Germans in the early 1900s, but if you think about their societal roles, um, especially maybe of women, they were expected to bear children, to get pregnant, um, and they weren't doing so even for a time. I wonder if that led to them feeling anxious or developing some type of anxiety symptoms. Number 10, paranoia. Another interesting aspect that I read in this book was um, Freud's linking persecutory paranoia, which is, let's say, you're paranoid and your primary paranoia is related to other people being out to get you. Okay, so this is what Freud says. From these observations, which were continually corroborated, we drew the conclusion that persecutory paranoia is the means by which a person defends himself against a homosexual impulse which has become too powerful. The conversion of the affectionate feeling into the hate, which, as is well known, can seriously endanger the life of the loved and hated object, then corresponds to the conversion of libidinal impulses into anxiety, which is a regular result of the process of repression. Now, Freud seems to be saying that if someone has an, a homosexual impulse that they deem to be dangerous, that the way to defend against this typically leads to paranoia, especially, specifically, persecutory paranoia. I first read this, and I had not too long ago read Psychoanalytic Diagnosis by Dr. Nancy McWilliams, where she says, a connection between paranoia and disavowed homosexual preoccupations has been noted for some time by clinicians and was confirmed by some empirical studies several decades ago. More recently, Adams, Wright, and Lohr did a series of experiments that showed that the more a man was aroused by homosexual imagery, the more homophobic he tested. Paranoid people, even the minority of them who have acted on homoerotic feelings, may regard the idea of same-sex attraction as upsetting to a degree that is scarcely imaginable to the non-paranoid. To gay and lesbian people who find it hard to see why their sexual orientation is perceived as so threatening, the homophobia of some paranoid groups is truly menacing. From this passage, it seems that Dr. Milt Williams is in many aspects agreeing with Freud and saying how that the feeling, the, the homosexual feeling in this case, if deemed dangerous, 
or repulsive can lead to paranoia. Um, a few pages earlier, she also writes, Freud thought same-sex longing was particularly implicated in paranoia, but my own experience suggests that any kind of longing feels unbearably dangerous to a paranoid person. So it seems more that paranoid personality styles may defend against unwanted dangerous feelings um, such as same-sex attraction, longing, love, intimacy, etc. They may defend against these dangerous feelings through the defense of paranoia, um, specifically persecutory paranoia. Again, thinking of what life was like in the early 1900s in Germany, it may not be surprising to find that people experiencing same-sex attraction um, as unwanted or dangerous may attempt to put the feelings out there and, and disown the feelings in themselves. It's not me, it's them, it's not in here, it's out there. So it makes sense in a way. Point number 11, old ideas as new ideas. So one of the things I love about reading the classics is seeing a lot of the ideas first presented and how that they are still ideas that people are presenting today without referencing any of the older ideas. A good example of this is Albert Ellis in Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. He talks about shooting, shooting yourself. And he says that it's it's not good to use shoulds to say I should have done this or I should have done that. It just brings judgment and condemnation upon yourself. Well, years earlier, Karen Horney, a psychoanalyst in Neurosis and Human Growth, wrote a chapter called Tyranny of the Shoulds. That was her idea, but it wasn't attributed to her. From my knowledge, it wasn't referenced to her. Anyone who knows about it now thinks about Albert Ellis and Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. Well, in CPT, or Cognitive Processing Therapy, you do this type of therapy a lot with maybe veterans who have come back from the war. And what you try to teach them is that maybe their current hypervigilance that might be leading to some current distress it was once very useful. It served a purpose over in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam. Um, but now that they're in this situation, they no longer need that. They don't need that defense anymore. They're fine here. They, they don't need the hypervigilance. And that what they once developed in order to protect them may now be leading to problems or, or current distress. And I, you see this idea in a general introduction to psychoanalysis. Freud writes, The new contribution we make to it lies, first of all, in demonstrating that the original solution led to illness and in promising that a different one would pave the way to health, and secondly, in pointing out that the circumstances have all changed immensely since the time of that original repudiation of these impulses. Then the ego was weak, infantile, and perhaps had reason to shrink with horror from the claims of the libido as being dangerous to it. Today it is strong and experienced and moreover has a helper at hand in the physician. So we may expect to lead the revived conflict through a better outcome than repression. So yeah, that idea is discussed by Freud. What you did when you were five years old in order to protect yourself against unbearable feelings might have protected you, but it also led to what you're experiencing now. And now you're older, you're more mature, you have the therapist, the physician to help you. Let's see if we can figure out a better way to take care of this problem. Point 12. Grief. 
The last point I want to go over with you guys is grief. Freud wrote, Grief is a prototype and perfect example of an affective fixation upon something that is past, and, like the neuroses, it also involves a state of complete alienation from the present and the future. But even the lay public distinguishes clearly between grief and neurosis. On the other hand, there are neuroses which may be described as morbid forms of grief. So that last sentence, there are neuroses that may be described as morbid forms of grief, it makes me think of prolonged grief disorder. Now, this is a mental disorder diagnosis that was just added to the DSM-5 TR, textual revision, this year. So Freud talked about this back in 1915, about there are other forms of grief that can be just categorized as neurosis or mental illness, but it took over a hundred years for them to add it to any type of our psychological classification system. Very interesting. So with that, that is my review of a general introduction to psychoanalysis. I hope you've enjoyed this video. This is a new style of video that I'm trying. If you've liked it, please let me know. Please like the video and leave a comment. And if you have any suggestions for improvements, please let me know as well. And I will try to make those adjustments to my next video which would be on the psychopathology of everyday life. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>